Well, good morning. Hey, great to see you. Uh, we got a lot going on here. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I want to welcome you. Uh, if it's your very first time here, we're really glad you're here. And just a couple of things. Uh, this week, uh, later on in the week, uh, I'm going to be sending probably on Thursday or Friday uh, a ministry update letter. And I've uh, just got a lot of exciting things to share with you. Uh, if you're brand new, one of the things I'll talk about in that letter is life groups, how they work, the commitments involved, uh, how to pick a group and stuff like that. So you'll want to be sure to get that. Uh, if, um, but for, for all of us, uh, even if you're in a, a life group, by the way, if you're brand new, this is the very best way to get involved. About, uh, you take our, our weekend adult attendance, uh, about 70, between 70 and 80% of those, uh, that number will be in life groups. So if you're here, this is not like a little peripheral thing. It really is how we do church. And so it's the very best way, if you're new, to get connected, uh, meet friends, uh, grow together. And so encourage you to watch for that. Um, for the rest of us who are kind of familiar with all that, in this letter, I've got a lot of great things to share with you. I've got some new staff to announce. We've been praying for years. And uh, so I guess uh, some, th some things to announce there. I'll, I'll, I'll save that for the letter. Uh, we've got, uh, what else? A brand new essentials class. Uh, I'm starting uh, this fall. It's kind of called Loving People, uh, learning, uh, it's kind of doing relationships a whole new way, kind of the Jesus way. And so I promise that class, that new class is coming out. Uh, we had 280 people in our last class this summer pursuing God. It was just an amazing time together. And so uh, that'll be the next one. And so uh, I got financial updates for you. I've got all kinds of things uh, that, are, that are coming up. We're doing a uh, a new, in September, we're doing kind of a 25th hour type event called Encounter. It's going to be a night of worship and prayer together here. The whole church comes together. We're going to be starting to do those quarterly. There's all kinds of exciting things happening this fall. Uh, so you want to, don't miss out. So uh, I need your email address on your card this weekend if we don't have your current one. Uh, even if it's your very first time, give us your email address. So you'll, you'll get in on the, on the bottom floor. Um, and uh, uh, if you don't ever fill out, fill out a card, do it today just so we, we'll get that to you. Um, if you don't have email, we'll have hard copies at our information center that's uh, called The Point out on the, the patio next weekend, so you'll be able to get that as well. Now, uh, let's see what else we got going on. Um, we just had our, our ministry team come back from uh, Ethiopia. And, uh, yeah, well, Ethiopia, Uganda, you know. Yeah. I'm already thinking of our team going in November to Ethiopia. Uh, it's like, I'm always a future guy. What's next, you know? Uh, so anyway, you got, we had 22 people there. Uh, they, let's see, they uh, did uh, eye care for the poor, uh, uh, just uh, outreach, uh, sharing Christ, uh, a women's, uh, kind of a couple of women's retreats, uh, sem seminar things at Kampala and Gaba, uh, the, uh, teaching in the, uh, uh, the Bible school we started, started last year. We had uh, four of our people teaching there. Just really great. So uh, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Rob Falk, our executive pastor, to come up and give us one highlight from that, all right? So let's welcome him up. Rob was on this uh, trip, so Rob, what's your, uh, I mean, a lot of amazing things, but what's your, one, one highlight? One highlight for me was I was teaching a class at the Bible Institute on church leadership and administration, and uh, there was a woman in this class that had grown up in a Christian home uh, until she was probably 20. She followed the Lord, and then she walked away. Uh, after a few years, she came back, and she walked away again, and this time when she walked away, she really walked away. She got into prostitution and um, was just down in the dumps. She had friends that were just pulling her more and more and deeper and deeper into that lifestyle. And it's really interesting because in, in Uganda, there's not a culture of leadership at all. There's not healthy leadership for the most part. That's why it's so great 
that were involved in the Bible Institute, why, why we're involved with Pastor Peter, because they are focused on leadership. So anyway, this woman, I'm teaching on leadership. She comes back to the Lord, and he puts a call on her life to serve the homeless and the down and out on the streets of Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda. And she's actually got a home there where she's bringing people in and feeding them and taking care of them. Many of them are sick. Many of them have AIDS. And so she's just ministering to this people, sort of a Mother Teresa story. But as we're teaching on leadership, most of the students were really struggling to grasp the concepts because it's so foreign to them. This woman not only grasped the concepts, but she was getting every nuance. Mm. Uh, before we even talked about it, she was all over this stuff. And I was just struck by what a gracious, forgiving, and loving God we've got, that this woman who had walked away so many times had just gone into the pits, and God had redeemed her and was using her in a mighty way. That's awesome. Very good. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> I saw Rob for the first time this, uh, this morning. Of course, I hadn't seen him in like two and a half weeks. It's great to see him. And how are you feeling? So I, I got home last night, I hadn't slept in 48 hours. <laughs> so uh, great, I'll be on the job tomorrow. It's good to go, Rob. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to go into our time of teaching. If this is your very first time, you'll want to especially reach in inside of your program. And there's a white message note sheet that we use every week for our time of, of teaching. And uh, that'll help you follow along as we continue this series. So, uh, so you all ready to go? Oh, wow, that's exciting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you're, you're, you're ready to go? <laughs> okay, there we go, let's go. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. Uh, we're excited about what you're doing in our church uh, here around the world. Uh, God, you're kind of waking us up, calling us on, teaching us what does it mean to be a movement of passionate Christ followers. And uh, Lord, as we talk today about the heart of your son and his passion to please you, his his purpose of pleasing you, his driving force for his life just to, to love you, to know you, to please you, and then how he calls us to pursue you in that same way. God, I can't think of a more important topic for us as a church. And so I, I pray for, for us that you would help me to speak clearly. I pray that you'd help us all to listen to what the Spirit would say to your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today on a Saturday, and that actually becomes an important part of the story. Um, we don't know a lot about this man. We don't, we don't really know how he got here, what his family was like, how he was raised, what happened in his life, how he got sick. But what we do know is that for the last 38 years, he's been uh, unable to move himself around. He's, he's probably paralyzed. Um, on this particular day, as the story opens up, he's... Uh, He's at this famous site in this, the capital city, and it's a, a site where there's these pools covered with these five covered porches around them, and legend had it that from time to time an angel would come down and stir the water, and, and that the first one in the pool would be healed after that. And so, you know, it's kind of like one of those, you know, things, you know, Mother Guadalupe thing or something, you know, people come all over the world, you know, because some, supposedly something happened. And so, all these disabled people, they're blind, lame, paralyzed, hanging out in this beautiful location, just hoping to be the first into the pool. And so that day, we're not sure how he got there, whether someone carried him there, whether he was somehow could make it there by himself, we're not sure. Um, we don't know if this was the first day he'd ever come to the pool or whether for the last 38 years he'd been coming every day. We don't know. But what we know that what was going to happen that day was going to change his life and not just his life, 
but the life of the man that he met that day changed both of their lives forever. And today we're, we're continuing a series that we've been in now for the last couple of months. It's called Revealed, for those of you who are new. It's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as recorded by one of his closest, uh, perhaps his best friend, a man by the name of John, later became the Apostle John. He wrote the Gospel of John. And uh, the series is called Revealed. That the first four chapters was the first sub-series, mini-series. It's called God in the Flesh. Today we enter into a brand new mini-series. It's chapters 5 through 12 called Conflict and Crisis. Um, these chapters take place in the south of Israel, in Jerusalem for the most part. Uh, almost all the chapters, one exception. All, the stories, they, they all happen at one of the major feasts that would, they would have throughout the year, these, these week-long feasts. And, and so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us uh, the story of Jesus mostly in the north of the country, up in Galilee. But uh, John fills in the, these gaps, and he tells us about these trips Jesus would make periodically down to the south, to the capital, during one of these major feasts, um, and to share his message and his movement. And, and so you put them together, we get a, kind of a, a better picture of the whole life and teaching of Jesus. And so, um, so as we open up chapter 5 today, he's making one of these trips down to the south, to the capital. Now, uh, before we jump in, though, let me set the stage. Last week we are in chapter 4. Jesus is in the south in, at the Jordan River. He's traveling north, stops Samaria, talks with a woman at the well, and then uh, ministers to her whole town for a couple days. He continues in traveling north to the city of Cana. Does that sound familiar? Can okay, we've seen that in chapter 2. Cana is where he did his first sign or miracle, uh, the changing of water into wine. So he returns to Cana. While he's in Cana, which is in Galilee in the north, uh, word gets out, Jesus is back, and 16 miles away in the city of Capernaum on the, on the, lake of Gal- on the Sea of Galilee, which was, eventually became Jesus' home base of operations. Uh, th- there's a man there who's a royal official of, of King Herod, probably, and he uh, has a son who's on his deathbed. He's desperate. And so he makes a 16-mile journey by chariot or whatever, entourage, he makes this 60-mile journey to Cana to find Jesus. says, would you come and heal my son? And Jesus says, I'll do better than that. It's done. And, uh, and so it was the second sign from 16 miles away. Remember the whole gospel of John. John's laying out the evidence for this case that he's building, that there was a time and place where the God who created time and space became part of history, invaded our planet, and revealed himself. That is the the thesis of the book. And so John's laying out these seven signs of evidence. So sign number one, the turning of water into wine. Sign number two, the healing of this boy 16 miles away with a word. Today we come to sign number three in chapter five. So let's take our Bibles. We're going to look at the first 20 verses today. Chapter 5, <laughs> verse 1. So sometime later, now we don't know how much later, but uh, sometime later, Jesus went to, up to Jerusalem. He, he, they always say they go up to Jerusalem because it's elevation, what, 3,000 feet, something like that. And so uh, they, they, even though you're traveling south, they say they go up to Jerusalem. So they go up to Jerusalem for a feast to the Jews. We don't know which one, but they have these big annual feasts, you know, multiple ones throughout the year. And uh, now there was in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. Now, 
ancient cities would have big walls around them. If they're a good-sized city for protection, multiple gates coming in. One of the gates coming into the city of Jerusalem was called the Sheep Gate because it's the gate that the sheep like to use. Uh, and, uh, yeah, all right. It's a little slow there, but you got it. All right. It worked really well in the other two services. Yeah, I'm not sure. Usually you're the best service for humor. Usually because you're the most awake. You know, Saturday, they're the renegades. You know, it's like we're, we're not traditional people. We come on Saturday. And Sunday at 9, we're the, we want to get this out of the way, people. And, uh, and, and we're, we're, you know, we're the type A's. We're up, but we're not awake, but we're here. And, uh, and then there's the 11 o'clock. We're the, hey, this is Sunday. Let's sleep in, people. And we're, we're happy. We've had our Starbucks. We are, we are just feeling good. And so, yeah, we'll laugh with you, whatever. <laughs> uh, but you're a little slow there. Uh, okay, so, so they go through the, the sheep gate. And there's this pool there, which in Aramaic, which is the, Aramaic is the, the native language of Palestine at this time, uh, is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, here's the interesting thing. We actually believe that we found this pool. Uh, if you go to Israel today, which we, maybe we'll do that someday, but uh, as we, if you go to Israel today, you go to a, a place called St. Anne's Church, there is a, a couple pools there. Archaeologists believe that these are the pools of Bethesda, or at least many archaeologists do. And what they've discovered, there's actually two pools there, and they're, they're surrounded by these uh, four covered columnades. Now, a columnade is a picture of Roman architecture, the huge pillars. Um, and then on top of these huge pillars would be like a flat stone roof. And so it's like a, like a large patio. So picture you've got the two pools in the middle. You've got four large columnades, patios around them. And then one between the pools for a fifth one. And so it created a really cool vibe, kind of a destination place type thing, where people would come. You know, they didn't have Starbucks. So they needed places like this. So they would come and hang out this beautiful, this, this uh, covered colonnades. Now, he tells us in verse 3 that here a great number of disabled people used to lie, like the blind and the, and the lame and the paralyzed. And you say, well, why did they come there? Well, it's a good question. And the reason is, as we find out as we go along, is that there was a local legend that, that at times when the waters would bubble, which is probably from a natural spring, that um, the locals believed that that was actually an angel stirring the water and that first one in after the angel got healed. And so it's all these disabled people are there just hoping that they could be kind of raced to be the first. And so, um, so that's why they're there. Now, interesting thing here. We need to do a little sidebar here. Uh, can we do a sidebar for just a second? Okay, we just need to do a sidebar. Uh, I wish we didn't have to do this because uh, it's going to be a long sermon. But we have to do it. All right, so at the end of verse 3, um, what comes after verse 3 in most of your Bibles? Not verse 4. Verse 5. If you have a King James Version, you have verse 4. Um, yeah, what kind of version do you have? New King James. Yeah, still King James. Right, right. So even new or old, still King James. So, uh, yeah, if you're King James, you, you get an extra verse uh, for free. But um, if you have a modern translation, New International, uh, Revised Standard, New American Standard, anything like that, uh, you're probably not going to have a verse 4. You're going to have a footnote. And so someone stole a verse, which always deserves a sidebar. Uh, so uh, at the end of my verse 3, there's a little letter B as in boy. Uh, you might have a different letter, but it's, a, it's referencing a footnote. So if I go to the bottom of my Bible, it says some less important manuscripts. So catch that. Uh, they, they say after the word paralyzed in verse 3, it ends with paralyzed, they, they go on and they continue on and they say this, they, they waited for the moving of the waters. 
From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, and the first one into the pool after such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So why does like King James have this and the modern translations don't? That's the question. And the reason is, you may not know this, but we don't have the original, what we call the autographs of the New Testament. Like we don't have the original, we don't have the, you know, John's actual handwriting. We don't have that. What we have is copies of that. Now, no need for alarm because we got a ton of copies and very early copies. And so real high, we know that what we have is what he wrote and all that. But from time to time, you'll have copies in the New Testament of the same passage that have minor variances. Now, nothing major, nothing like uh, changes doctrine or teaching like that, but just minor variances. And so the question is, well, which one was the original? And so scholars have come up with a, a uh, science called textual criticism, where they figure out what was the original. And this is not just for Bible, it's for any ancient documents. And so uh, what they're telling you is that in the most ancient and reliable documents, uh, manuscripts, that verse 4 was not there. So what probably happened is that, you know how we have study Bibles and we have like little comments we have in our study Bibles to help us understand the text. What probably happened, some scribe is reading through the story. He knows about this local legend. He writes it in the, the margin you know, like as a footnote kind of thing. The next scribe that comes along, he doesn't really know if that's like part of the original or what, doesn't want to leave it out, so he puts it in the text. Um, And so that's why now, when the King James Bible was written in 1611, they didn't have all the manuscripts we have now. They were going off the best they had at the time. We found some better ones now, and so that's why uh, in our, the more modern translations, it'll say, hey, this goes in the footnote here, probably wasn't in John's original, right? But the, th- the helpful thing either way is it gives us a little information about why they were there and which fits with the rest of the passage, as you'll see. So anyway, moving on, end of sidebar. Um, as we're moving on, in verse uh, 5, it says, there was one guy who was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Um, the Greek actually says that he was sick or weak. We don't know exactly what was wrong with this man. Later on, we're told that he had no one to put him in the pool when the water moved. So it sounds like perhaps he's paralyzed. That's probably our best guess. We're not sure. But uh, he's been this way for 38 years. Now, think where you were 38 years ago. A lot of people were like, I wasn't anywhere, Mike. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when you're much older like you, I guess you could ask questions like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's 1971. Where were you in 1971? Um, that's a long time to be sick. And we don't know if this guy has come in every day to this pool for 38 years or whatever, but this, this, this is the hard life he has. And uh, on top of that, his only hope is to be the first in the pool and he's paralyzed. It's like, talk about up a creek without a paddle. You know, it's like, this guy's in a hard spot. Now this place is full of disabled people, blind, paralyzed, and Jesus is gonna walk through and walk by every one of those people and not heal any of them and just go to this one guy. Interesting. And so uh, in verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and he learned, actually in the Greek it says he knew, that he had been in his condition for a long time. He asked him, hey, do you want to get well? And the guy says, "Uh, well, yeah. Um, He says, I I have no one to help me to get in the pool uh, when the water is stirred. 
And while I'm trying to get in, uh, someone else gets there ahead of me. So sure, I, I would love to, but look at me. You know, I just, I, I can't really do that. And Jesus says, well, that's, that's not, I just said yes or no would have been good enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, he says, um, that's what Jesus wanted to know. Okay, so that's a yes. We'll take that as a yes, put it down as a yes. And uh, so Jesus says, okay, I want you to get up. Uh, I want you to pick up your mat, and I want you to walk. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, we get so used to the miracles of Jesus. But at that moment, the nerves, the bone, the muscles, the ligaments, the skin, instantly, the creator of the universe speaks, and he's whole. And not only is he whole, he is in shape. I could use a little of this in my life. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Just be healed. Whoa! You know, like. I mean, th- think about this. When you're sick for a couple weeks, if you're laying in bed, you lose muscle tone fast. This guy's for 38 years. And so now, not only does he work, but he has, he's, he's, he's good. He, he can stand up. And so, so sure enough, uh, he does. And... Uh, and so he, he, he starts doing this, and, and so it's just amazing. And you've got to imagine this. I mean, and this is going to draw a crowd. I mean, we're in the middle of, of disabled people, and one guy is suddenly, and he's got to be leaping. He's got to be jumping. He's got to be swinging his mat around, you know, doing the wave. Woo! You know, he just, this, this guy is excited, and a crowd's gathering. And while the crowd's gathering, Jesus just kind of quietly slips away, never introduces himself, doesn't leave a business card, just, he's just gone. And so this guy's there now, he's carrying his mat. Well, we got a problem. Uh, it's Saturday. Uh, what's Saturday? Sabbath. Saturday is Sabbath. You're supposed to work on the Sabbath. When, when the Jews came out of Israel, they had been slaves. They worked from dawn to dusk every day of their lives, never got a day off. And when God took over the nation, he said, okay, you serve me now, and you get a, a holiday every week. Every week you get a, a, a holiday. Every week you get a day off to refresh, to renew, to relax. And they're like, wow, you know, how cool is that after living a life of slavery? This is an incredible gift of God that God gave the nation of Israel, this day off every week. Can't work can't work. You just got to relax. Just got to enjoy life. It's a gift. I'm going to make it a rule because I know you're type A's. You'd work, work through it, you know. And so, so he gives them this incredible gift. And by the time of Jesus, they'd taken this gift and they'd ruined the gift. The religious leaders had turned it into this oppressive legalistic law. They'd come up, this is a true story, they'd come up with 39 categories of work just to make sure that no one violated it. And each of the 39 categories had a long list of rules, of illustrations, what you couldn't do. Category 39 was no bearing of burdens on the Sabbath. And to show you how extreme they were about this, like let's say you were a tailor, and you could not carry a needle in your coat on the Sabbath. That was bearing a burden. Um, If you were a woman, you couldn't wear a brooch or jewelry. It was bearing a burden. You see how oppressive this became? They would even argue over whether it was okay if you had false teeth or a wooden leg, whether it was okay to use that on the Sabbath. Because after all, those aren't your teeth. You're bearing a burden as you go along. 
And so they'd taken this incredible gift of God and they'd turned it into this oppressive uh, rule. And so, so what happens, this guy's totally excited. Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk. He's like, okay, he's going for it. He's walking through town and it's like alarm bells are going off in the spiritual leaders. Because, uh, I mean, they, they were like the spiritual police, you know? If you go to Israel today, you get on an elevator on the Sabbath, uh, you can't push the eighth floor and go there. Uh, because on the Sabbath, the elevator uh, stops at every floor automatically, so you don't have to push a button uh, to work on the Sabbath. And so th- this is the sort of mindset of the culture. And so, I mean, this was serious. You have to understand, for the Jews, the Sabbath was one of their principal uh, markers of what marked them off as a nation. We observe the Sabbath and we observe it like this. So when you see a guy walking through town with a mat, it's like alarm bells are going off. Everything's going on. Violation, you know? And the spiritual police are out. And these li- religious leaders, they come up and they're like, what are you doing? And so in the middle of verse uh, 10, or verse 9, uh, <laughs> it says that the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, talking to the Jewish leaders, it's a Sabbath. Like the law forbids you to carry your mat. Like what are you doing? And he said, well, the man who made me well, um, he said, pick up your mat. And I'm thinking if he can heal me, probably knows what he's talking about. <laughs> you know. And so they're like, well, who is this fellow? This is so sad. I mean, this is what should have happened at this point. They should have been going like, hey, man, maybe we've messed this up. Maybe we're getting this wrong. If there's this guy from God who can heal people going around telling you to carry your mat, maybe we're misunderstanding. You know, they, need, they should be reevaluating. Like, who is this guy? Who can do this? It's amazing. Miracles. A prophet of God. We, might, we should go find this guy. We want to learn from God. You know, that's what should be happening. But they're, oh, no, no, they're into their rules. And so they just want to know his name. Well, of course, the, the man, verse 13, who had healed, he had no idea who it was. Jesus had slipped away in the crowd. And so later, and we don't know how much later. Was it a day later? Was it uh, two days later, two hours later? We don't know. But Jesus goes looking for this guy. So he heals him, sneaks away silently. He doesn't want to create a scene right there. But later he goes to find him because he wants to talk to him about his spiritual life. And uh, he says something really odd that he never says in any other healing in all, his, in all the Gospels. He says to him, verse 14, he finds him at the temple, and he says to him, see, see you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Whoa, <laughs> pretty heavy. Uh, okay. Um, it's really interesting because Jesus never says something like this. And in the Bible, you don't have this teaching that tragedy, sickness is tied to personal sin. Like there's no teaching in the Bible. In fact, it teaches the opposite. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you're, you're blind. You must have done something and took God off. It's like, the Bible uh, doesn't teach that. Uh, but there are exceptions in the Bible where God will send physical ailments or some kind of judgment as a discipline. There are exceptions. So it appears that what's going on is that in this man's case, the reason he was sick was because of some sort of sin. That's what it looks like is going on, which may explain why Jesus walked through that whole crowd of that thing and looked for this guy. There was something going on deeper than just picking a guy at random. And so anyway... Um, in verse 15, it says, so at this point, now the guy knows who Jesus is. He didn't know before. So now he, he's going to go tell the leaders. Not so bright on his part, really. You know, they're out to kill him. Uh, hey, I know. <laughs> I found his name. Um, so the man goes and he tells the Jews it was Jesus. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, to catch this, not just healing people, 
but encouraging people to break the law, like pick up your mat. So he's not just healing himself, he's encouraging others to break their laws, their man-made rules. And so the Jews persecuted him. And so Jesus at this point, you know, he could just back it off now, right? He could just kind of withdraw from this, but Jesus is going to take it to the next level. I'm telling you, I love this guy. (laughs) One of the things I absolutely love about Jesus is his courage. Uh, He does not back down for anyone, anytime, anyplace. I mean, he is going to say what he needs to say. You, You understand this. As Christ's followers, one of the most important character qualities in our life is courage. And we're going to talk about that in about three weeks, three or four weeks. We're going to come back to this. And you get to chapter seven. But, um, but for right now, uh, Jesus could just take some water, put it on the fire, kind of, kind of settle things down. Oh, no, he takes gasoline. And uh, he says, oh, that irritates you? <laughs> let me really irritate you. Uh, let me tell you why I healed on the Sabbath. And he says, uh, so verse 17, he says, my father, you know, um, God, <laughs> um, my father, uh, he's always at work uh, to this very day. I mean, he's like runs the universe, um, doesn't take Sabbaths off. Work, he works Saturdays. Um, and I, too, am working. We're kind of partnering together. Um, so I just healed this guy on the Sabbath. You're like, you think I just did that on my own? I mean, it's like, I'm not, it's not on my own. It's like he showed me to do that. I, I'm doing it because he, he's doing it. You know, we're together. And so for this reason, the Jews tried a little harder to kill him. So before they wanted to kill him, now they really want to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's always people that come around and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, we're going to see in the Gospel of John, he does claim to be God. And this was one of those times. And so the Jews would talk about God as father in a generic sense, like he's our father. But they wouldn't talk in this personal, my father, is my, my father kind of thing. He's like, what he's saying is, I, like, I made out of the same stuff. It's like, Father's son. I made out of God's stuff like he is, you know? I, I've got the DNA. I've, I've got his stuff. And so they know exactly what he's saying. So now they're really mad. And so Jesus goes on to make a matter. Verse 19, he says, I tell you the truth. Uh, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, the son, catch this, can do nothing by himself. Now underline that. This is key. We're going to come back to this later today. The son can do nothing by himself. He says, uh, you're, you're mad at me because I healed the guy on the Sabbath. I did not make this up. This was not my idea. The way I do my life, I just do what the Father shows me to do. I'm not out there making up my own life. I don't have my own purposes. I don't have my own plans. The way I live my life is I just kind of find out what God wants me to do, and I do it. I do nothing by my, myself. And my passion in life is to please my Father. Um, and he says he can, um, he can only do what he sees his Father doing. And Jesus seems to be using an analogy here of like an, a, a father-son apprentice. Like imagine Jesus as a boy working with Joseph uh, his father, his stepfather, and, and learning how to be a carpenter to work with stone. And, you know, father says, here's how you shape the wood. And then the son goes, yeah, I'll try it. And you got this image going on here of a father and a son working together, apprenticeship. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, I'm not, I'm working on my own. I can only do what I see my father doing. It's like we're working together. He's showing me how to do things. And so he goes on and he says, uh, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the, the father loves the son. I mean, we're very close. And he shows him all that he does. It's like some of you have kids or had grandkids or uh, you've, you've known kids. And, uh, you know, it, just how fun it is as a parent to show your kids how to do stuff. It's just really fun. Show a little kid how to do things. 
It's like, here's how you bait the hook or take them fishing or here's how you hit the ball or no, throw it like this. I remember working with my girls when they're in softball. It's like, you're throwing like a girl. Stop it, you know? And, and like, <laughs> like, like teach them how to throw like a man, you know? <laughs> and they got really good too. Um, it's like, I, this is a little chicken wing thing. Come on, you know? It's like, and so um, it's just fun. It's just fun when you're, you're working with your kids to, to bring them into life and to show them how to grow up and to be who they're created to be. And so that's what Jesus is saying here, that the Father shows him. He loves, there's this love relationship between Father and Son, and he just loves showing Jesus, okay, hey, let's, hey today, I'm gonna, let's go heal a guy. I'm going to show you how to heal a guy. You know, 38 years, let's heal him. And so uh, that's what Jesus is saying. We're, we're a team. And then he says, yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than this. Like, you haven't seen nothing yet. Uh, you think this is amazing, the 38-year-old guy? Watch out. There's more to come, not only in this life, but in the next life. And he's going to go on in this conversation talking about what God's called him to do and be in his life. And it's going to get pretty amazing, uh, what he claims. And we'll look at that more next week. But for today, uh, I just want to focus in on this one concept of partnership, this one concept of purpose, this one concept of passion. Jesus kind of painting out for us, uh, hey, I don't do anything in my life on my own. I just do what my father shows me. I, my father loves me. He shows me what to do. We're a team. We're partnering. Uh, what we're going to see today is the heart of Jesus. Now, whenever uh, uh, we started this series, I told you that one of the things I love about the gospel of John is that more than any other gospel, John pulls back the shades uh, and shows us the heart of Jesus. And this is always fascinating to me. Like, like I am passionate. Like, I want to know Jesus. I want to know how he thinks, how he feels, how he responds, because I want to be just like him, right? And so in my life, I says, anytime I can get an insight into what, what, how's Jesus processing life, what drives him, what motivates him, that's, like, I'm drawn to that stuff. And the Gospel of John does that more than any other gospel. It shows you the heart of Jesus. And today in this passage, he gives us a window into the soul of Jesus, what drives him. And so today we want to talk about purpose. And of course, the whole thing is that as Jesus is, so we are called to be, right? That we often say this here, the whole reason of following Jesus is to become like Jesus. The student becomes like the teacher. That's the whole purpose. Like we don't follow Jesus just so we're forgiven and we can go to heaven. That's part of the package. We follow Jesus to become like Jesus. That's why we're following him. That's why he died for us, so he can change us, give us a new life. We can become like him. And so today, what we're doing is we're kind of pulling the, the cover off the, the, watch, the watch back, and we're seeing like the mainspring of his life, like what drives him, what motivates him. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Paradigm of Purpose, and Jesus is going to challenge our paradigm. Like, what do you live for? What's your deepest passion? What drives you in your life? Jesus is going to challenge. He's going to say, here's, here's my life. Here's my heart. Here's what drives me. How does that compare to your life? You see, and he's going to model it for us. So here we go. Just kind of one major point we're going to be focusing on today. And this, according to Jesus, it goes like this. Let's fill in the blank there in your note sheet. That our core purpose, according to Jesus, our core purpose in life is to please him. If you, if you boil it all down and you say, what, is, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? You boil it all down. You strip it back. You take a look at the heart, and here's what it is. A bottom line is more than anything else, I want to know, love, and please God. I, I want to I please him and make him happy. This is what drives me. 
You see, this is at the heart of what it means to be a passionate Christ follower. It's from the inside out. The passion of our life is to know, please, love him. Right? And so Jesus is going to model this for us, what it looks like to be, have the heart of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. Real quickly, we're going to run through five passages in John where we get to see the heart of Jesus in action. Then we're going to come back and talk about how that heart gets created in our lives. All right? So let's take a look, uh, first of all, back at John chapter 4. This is a passage we looked at last week. I promised you would come back, and so here we, here we go. Chapter 4 and verse 34. You remember this scene? Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. His men get back from town. They've got the food. When he left, he sent them in town to get food. He was starving. He gets back. They say, we got the food. He says, oh, I'm not hungry. And so he begins to explain what he means in verse 34. He says, my food. Now, he's using an analogy here, right? Food is that which sustains us. It's what energizes us. It empowers us. He says, my food in life, what energizes me, what empowers me, what gets me up in the morning, which drives me from, from, noon, uh, from, from uh, dusk to dawn, what, what drives me and motivates me, empowers me and sustains me, my food, that which drives me in my life, is to do the will of him who sent me. This is my passion. This is what feeds me. All day long, I go through my life, Jesus says, and you're saying, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do here? And it's like my food, as I pursue it, I take in the food, and I just, I eat the will of God all day. And I just, I just take it in, and it empowers me, and I feel his strength, and I feel his energy, and I feel his passion coming into me as I devour the will of God for my life, you see? Okay, let's go to chapter five. Chapter five and verse 19, this is the verse we've looked at today. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. I don't have a plan for my life. I don't have a purpose for my life. Uh, I, I don't have dreams for my life. My, my purpose for my life, my dreams, is what my father dreams for me. Like, I'm not out there making up my life as I go. I'm not like, a, I have this plan for my life. God, will you bless it? It's like I'm all about finding God's plan for my life and embracing it. That's what I'm about. Yeah. Go to chapter 6 and verse 38. This is uh, during his Bread of Life sermon that we'll get to in a couple weeks. Fed 5,000, 10,000, 15, whatever, with women and children the day before. Next day, the crowds are following because they want more free food. And so, in verse 38, he says, I have, not, I have come down from heaven. That's why I'm here. I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. See? It's like, I, I don't have an agenda. My passion in life is to find out what my father, are, are you with me in this? Are you getting this? Yeah. Are you getting, can, you, can you get how different this is from the way we often do life? Like I've got an agenda for my life, God will you bless my life? And Jesus is like, no, his passion, his joy is to find out his father's plan. And he's just like, he's all over it. And it just feeds him. This is where we're going as Christ's followers. This is where he's taking us. Uh, let's look at another one, chapter eight and verse 29. Well, let's look at verse 28 too. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, in other words, when I go to the cross, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. I'm God in the flesh. And you will know that I do nothing on my own. There it is again. But I speak just what my Father has taught me. My teaching, it's not my own, it's coming from my Father. The one who sent me 
is with me. He has not left me alone. Why? Because I always do what pleases him. Catch that. Underline that Bible. I always do what pleases. This is the life of Jesus. Now, let's go to chapter 14, last one. Chapter 14 and verse 30. He's about to be arrested later this evening. He's with his men. Fourteen and verse thirty, um, he says to his men, "I will not speak with you much longer." Um, he's about to be arrested. For the prince of this world, Satan is coming. He's bringing in the troops to arrest me. Um, he has no hold on me, no influence in my life. But the world must learn two things: the world is the reason I'm going to the cross. The world has to learn this: that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now, now you, are you with me in this? Are, are you following where I'm, where I'm going with this so far? What I want you to see is the heart of Jesus. What I want you to see, this is who we're called to be. We're to be like him. That the deepest driving passion of our life, more important than anything else, more important than any person, any, anything, any goal, any dream, that the passion of our life that drives us is to please our Father. That, that our love for him, we just, we just want to please him. Are you with me? We clear there? Okay, now once we get that, we can go on to the next step. Here's the next step. Have you noticed this does not come naturally to us? Anyone can relate with me on this? Not natural? Yes. And so, so how does that happen? Well, because naturally, we're born into this world. Our number one passion is to please ourselves. That's what we do in our life. And this is why we argue and wrestle with God even after we become Christ followers because we want to do our own will. We want to please ourselves. So this is how we're hardwired. So how does this, we become like Jesus to where this driving passion becomes legitimately, genuinely different? How does that happen? I'll tell you how. Jesus says it requires a death. He says the only way for you to become like me is via death. There has to be a death to yourself in order you can rise to a whole new life, this life I came to give you. That there is no life without death. The only way to become like Jesus is to go with him to the cross. And so this is what he says. There in your note sheet, uh, Matthew 16, he spells this out. Jesus said to his disciples, to his followers, If anyone, now catch that, circle that anyone, so if you're here, it applies to you. If anyone wants to come after me, in other words, be my follower, then he must, notice that, no no negotiating, he must do what? Deny Deny himself. Let's say it again. He must Deny. deny himself. Now, catch what he says. He does not say deny certain things. He says deny himself. It sounds like a whole new paradigm to me. Oh, no, no. I live to please myself. That's how I get joy in life. Jesus says, no, no, no. You want life? You have to deny Yourself. Now, we, we read that, and we, re- we read, like, deny certain things. Oh, you mean like you want me to surrender part of my finances to you? 
oh, you remember, you, what you mean is you, you want me to stop dating this person who's a non-believer. Oh, what you mean is I'm doing pornography and you want me to stop doing that. Oh, what this means is my, my, I'm putting my job ahead of my family, you want me to, and so we read, if you must deny certain things about himself. That's how we read this. If anyone's following me, he must deny himself certain things. That's not what he said. No, he says, it's much deeper than that. You have to deny yourself. You have to give up the right to yourself. You give up living for yourself. You, you die to that whole way of life that says, what do I want? And you embrace a new way of life that says, God, what do you want uh, at a core level? And look what Jesus says. Uh, he would come out to you, he must deny himself, take up his cross, remember, which is an instrument of death, and follow me. And catch this, for whoever wants to save his life, you want to hold on to control of your life, your dreams, your purpose, your choices, you want to hold on to your life, he says, what will happen? You lose it. In other words, we're all looking for the secret to life. Jesus says the secret of life is not living for yourself. He said, you'll lose it. You hold on to your dreams and visions, you'll lose it. You might even attain your dreams, but it won't give you life. He says, uh, but whoever loses his life for me, in other words, because I ask him to, he will find it. So the Gospel of John says, I've come to give you life, but that life always comes via a process of death. Uh, Oswald Chambers probably read him before or heard of him, famous Christian writer. He puts it this way, there on your note sheet. It's a little bit old, old school language, but follow along, it's really worth it. Uh, no one is ever united with Jesus Christ, someone comes into this close relationship with him, until he's willing to relinquish not sin only, that's what we think he wants, a certain sin, but to relinquish his whole way of looking at things. Hey, you're, this paradigm of this right to myself. The Spirit of God will show us further what, uh, what further there is to relinquish. There will have to be the relinquishing of my claim to my right to myself in every phase of my life. Now, am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess, my kids, my family, my dreams, my finances, my pleasures, my purposes, my dreams, my priorities? Am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess and my hold on my affections, the things I love most in life, and on everything to be identified with the death of Jesus Christ? Now catch this. Here's what Jesus says. He's saying it's when we relinquish that control that we rise to a new life. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. There in your note sheet, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, he died for all. Like if I were to ask you, why did Jesus die for you? I think most of us would say, so that I could be forgiven and go to heaven. But look what Paul says. He died for all, that those who live become alive with Christ. We should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. It's a whole new paradigm. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that if you want the most out of life, if you want life the way it's lived, trust me, 
you have to give up your life. You have to give up control. And not just of certain parts of your life, no, your life, the control center of your life. So, the next question we have to ask then is, well, how does that happen? How do we die to self in order we have this new life? And, and the answer is uh, that God takes care of this for us. He will engineer circumstances. And I want to talk about two different kinds of circumstances. We're going to talk about big deaths and little deaths. All right? When you talk about dying to self, this is what I found in the life of a Christian. If you want to go on with Jesus, if you don't, you don't really want to know him or follow him, this won't happen, but if you, if you do, that over the course of your life, maybe a few times, this doesn't happen very often, it's not like every week or every year, or something like that, but over the course of your life, there's a few critical junctures you come to, uh, major crossroads in your life. And, and this, these crossroads, to be a major death, here's what has to be like. Everything within you, when you come to this crossroads, says go right. If I go right, I will be happy. Everything within you. Everything within you says, if I go right, I'll be happy. And Jesus is standing there giving directions, and he says, no, you need to go left. And at those moments in life, and these are big time things. These are big time encounters with Jesus. This is not just a general run-of-the-mill obedience thing. This is like, you know, every few times, every once in a while in a life, it happens. It, it's, it's, maybe it's a, a relationship issue. Maybe it's a priority issue. Maybe it's a sin issue, whatever. But Jesus says, no, I need you to give up yourself. Because what it feels like, what it feels like at those moments is that your happiness is on the line. And that if you follow Jesus, you will not be happy. You will be giving up your very life. Are, are you with me in this? You know what I'm talking about? So I'm not talking little things. I'm talking about, you know, if I follow Jesus in this, I'm giving up my best shot and happiness in life, and I will go through life. It will be a vanilla life. That's what it feels like. Everything within you says that. And it's what we do on those days that determine our spiritual destiny. Because at those days, if we take up our cross and we die to ourselves and we say yes to Jesus, we go, it's very painful, but we go through an amazing resurrection. We rise to a new life. But if we say no to Jesus those days, we lay down our cross, we, we, we keep our old life. And it probably won't even be the same life we have. It will go downhill from that point on, you see? And, and so, so there's, there's major deaths. There's big deaths. But then after we make the right decision, those, there's then everyday deaths, isn't there? And so it's our attitudes, it's our actions, it's a giving up certain rights or whatever. It's, this is a daily thing for a Christ follower to, to die to herself. Jesus said we have to take up our cross daily in one place. And so, so it's an ongoing thing. But, but here's what happens. Once we make th- that decision and we surrender whatever that issue is, what happens is we go through a resurrection, we rise with Christ, and what happens, you'll find this every time, there is a new passion in your life. And guess what? It's the passion of Jesus. It's the passion to love your Father, to live for your Father, to give him everything. It's like you, the passion of Jesus is born in your life through that death. The re, what, who, you know who gets resurrected in your life? Jesus comes alive in your life. There's a resurrection of G, the life of Jesus in your life as you go through that death. 
and we begin to experience life at a whole new level, it's like the universe, our little part of the universe comes back into alignment. The bone that was broken in our soul gets reset because here's the thing, you and I were created to live for him. And until we are there and embrace that, we will never live the life we were meant to, to live. We will always go through life with flat tires. It's, it will never be right. But when we embrace that, it, the universe comes into alignment. And guess what? At that point, we begin to partner with God for his purpose for our life. So we're all created with a purpose. But until we get to the place where our passion is right, we can never achieve our purpose. Because from, from a, a spiritual point of view, passion precedes purpose. And you gotta get your passion right before you achieve your purpose in life. And that's why Jesus was able to partner with his father. He could only do what his father was showing him to do because his passion was to please his father. He was able to discern what it was. And what happens is when we get our passion right, our, our, we're able to hear the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. And he's able to say, this is my purpose. And we partner with him and life goes to a whole new level. And we live the purpose we were designed to. Does, does this all make sense? Okay, so this, so this is a, so we, as we die to self, we rise to this new life. It opens us up to this, uh, this passion to partner with God, this whole new relationship. Life comes back into alignment. We take off and it runs. And I'm telling you, it, here's what I'll tell you. This is the scariest day of your life. This is not easy stuff. Because I swear to you, on those days, when he asks for this in your life, it feels like to follow Jesus will ruin my life. That's what it feels like. And that's why it's a step of faith that this God you've come to know and love and trust, you, you, you put all the chips, you slide them over on Jesus. And you say, I'm betting it all, I'm betting the house on Jesus. Right? And then he pays off big. Right? Great little gambling analogy. All right. Now, I got one, I've got one more question for you, all right? So let's turn the page. As, as we wrap this up, uh, what's your paradigm? One quick question. Here we go. Uh, so you know, I've got one question for you today. So we're sitting at Starbucks together. It's you and I, one-on-one. -on -one. For whatever reason, you're feeling safe. You, you feel like you can trust me. We can have a heart-to-heart. And so here's my question. If we could sit there one-on-one, -on -one, I would take a box out of my backpack and I would put it on the table. And I would say, what's in your box? And, and you'd say, what do you mean? Well, here's the question. The question is, what's your deepest passion? If we could sit there, I'd put a box on the table and I'd say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach into your heart and I want you to figure out what matters to you more than anything else in life. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. There can only be one controlling passion, one top priority, one primary purpose. It may take you this week to figure this out. You may have to pray about this, what it is for you. It may not be readily obvious. But what drives you more than anything else? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it money? Is it popularity? Is it your kids? Is it a relationship? Is falling in love? Is it someday getting married? Is it getting out of a marriage? What is number one thing in your life? This is your driving passion. It matters more to I would ask you, reach into your heart, put it in the box. What is your deepest passion? Here's what I find. Um, 
as Christ's followers, if we walk with Jesus, we go through three different stages. Now, some people stop after stage one or whatever. But there's three different stages that we continue following. Stage one is what Jesus does for me. We come to Jesus. We hear the message he died for our sins that we could be forgiven, have a new life. We say, sign me up. That's the best offer I've ever going to see. Grace. And so we start following Jesus. It's about what he does for me. And as we follow Jesus a while, he begins to mess with our lives. And he begins to say, uh, can we open the door to this bedroom right here? Like, what's in here? <laughs> oh, sorry, you know, that one's locked. Uh, you know, kind of busy, you know, oh, occupied. Uh, no, 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 we need to talk about this room. And so, okay, we open the door and it's like crud. You know, bad stuff's in the room. And so uh, he says, we need to clean this thing out. Oh, but it means so much to me. No, we gotta go clean it out. And we start going through this wrestling match with Jesus and, and he starts moving through our life, room by room, and we kind of argue with him. And sometimes we obey him, sometimes we don't. Every time we do obey him and surrender, our life gets better. And so we're kind of building some trust up along the way. I guess he really does know better. And this is kind of, this is kind of stage two. We're building trust along the way. That he does love me, he does know better. It's really hard to obey him, but when I do, life always gets better. I've never been sorry. And then there comes a day that's stage three. And stage three, Jesus says, I want the deed to the house. Hey, but we haven't even looked at all the rooms yet. I know, I just want them all. But I, I wanted to say, no, no, no. I just want the whole thing. I want the whole thing. Like from now on, like you've been in the control center of your life. We've always been this negotiating mode. I ask for you to do this and you decide whether you will or not. From this point on, I just want your life, all your life. From this point on, I make the choices. From this point on, uh, you just live for me. From this point on. And, and it's, that day is so scary. I'm telling you. But can I tell you something? When that day comes and you take the deepest love of your life, whatever it is, the deepest passion, and you put it in the box and you slide it over to Jesus and you go through that death, it's that day you come alive. It's that day the spirit of Jesus rises up inside of you and you have this new passion. It's a passion for life. It's a passion for people. It's a passion for God more than anything else. It's the passion of Jesus that's been given birth in your life through death and that's the day that Jesus says, this is the life I came to give you. And the whole journey has been to bring you to this point. And now that you're in this point, we can begin to partner in my plan for your life. And I will begin to show you how to do life just like my father showed me how to do life. And we will partner together, you see. Men and women, this is what Jesus is calling us to as followers. And this is what he's calling us to as a church. You may have not picked this up. I think you've picked this up by now that Christ has a calling on our church. This church is not called to be a nominal church. This church is not called to be a feel-good church. <laughs> this church is not called to be a mediocre, lukewarm, moderate church. This church is being called to be a movement of passionate Christ followers. You see, this is what he's calling us to. 
And you say, well, Mike, where does that passion come from? I'm telling you, you cannot create this passion. This is not something you just whoop it up or make it happen or stand on your head or read your Bible for eight hours or pray or fast. You cannot create this passion. But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you how this passion comes. This passion comes one way and one way only. It comes as you die to yourself when Jesus asks you and you rise again. And it is a supernatural passion for Jesus that only he can create. Only he can create. You don't have to create the passion. You just have to take up your cross and follow where he leads you, and you will rise with him to a whole new life. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're excited about this journey, but we're also scared. But I remember that day in my life. I remember when you asked me. I remember the terror in my heart. The deer in the headlights, look, it was so scary to think of relinquishing control, not just for one part of my life, but for my life. And look, what I, I know for me, it was out of that day that life sprung. It, that my life goes back to that day. And I know it's true for all of us here. Now, I know for some of us here, we've got that deer in the headlights feeling that that we know what you're asking. You're asking to, to put our kids in the box. You're asking to put our marriage in the box. You're asking to put our, our dreams or our retirement in the box. You're asking us to put our money in the box. You're asking us whatever it is, it's, it's that thing that makes life worth living that we believe will make us happy, and it's so scary. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us courage. We pray that you'd give us humility. We pray that You'd give us faith that you love us and that this is the path to life and that as we die, that we will rise to a new life, the life you came to give us. And so, Lord, we pray as a church, we pray for singleness of heart, singleness of action, that our passion at Rocky Peak will be to please you come hell or high water. We are driven. We are motivated. We are passionate. We are energized. We are filled. And the desire of our heart is that you get the glory you deserve and that you take hold of our lives and you use us for your purpose. And it is the driving passion of our life. And it's not something we created. It's something you created. As we died with you, we rose. So we pray you'd meet us today. You'd help us to say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.